This is All Rings Considered with your usual hosts, Charlie, that's me, and Pip. Um, hi, Charlie. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. This week we are on, what episode is this now? Oh my gosh, 30 Eight. million. 38, okay. Not 30 million, but 38, that's good. And we are covering book four, and what chapter? Oh my gosh, we are so late in this chapter, book four, chapter five, uh, The Window on the West. Great chapter title, by the way. I want to throw that out there right now. Uh, rank this pretty highly for chapter titles. It's pretty good. And yeah, it's it's actually a very long chapter, but event-wise, there's not too much that happens. Last chapter, we saw Faramir and his men come upon Sam and Frodo. This chapter, they have some discussions with Frodo, uh, sort of between Frodo and Faramir as they've been captured. But then also Faramir takes them to their hidden hideout. Uh, this is where you get to see the the aforementioned window on the west, which is really just like this opening behind a waterfall that looks to the west, and you can see a sunset, which is nice. We'll get to that. Um, in there, they discuss some more, and what happens is basically Frodo fills in Faramir on some of his own story and stuff. Faramir fills Frodo in some Gondor history, but we also find out that Faramir is Boromir's brother, and so he has a bit of a vested interest. The most significant event I would say happens in this chapter is Faramir's denial of the ring. There are a couple moments when this happens. First, he doesn't know Frodo has the ring, but he knows Frodo has something powerful, or at least had. There's, he knows something powerful is out there, and he says, "Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that." And then eventually, he does learn that Frodo has the ring because Sam accidentally spills the beans, and Faramir still says, "I still do not want this. I'm just going to to help you," and that's that. Mm-hmm. We can start unpacking more like why Faramir does this and his thought process because I do think that takes up the bulk of this chapter but those are the basic events uh for it yeah um, let's yeah uh, what do you think? I actually I think this chapter is underrated um mm-hmm. I say that and I'm not you know I actually don't have that much insight into what how people rank chapters as they're reading <laughs> right. Lord of the Rings, right but I it feels like a chapter that could be underrated it feels like a really good b-side I think there's a lot going on here um one thing I'll point out just at the beginning this is the last time I'll do this, but it's an example of that literary device that we talked about uh, last cha- uh, episode where we're seeing things from the perspective of a character um, mm-hmm. in the narrative description. Um, when the de- description of the semicircle that all the uh, Gondorians are sitting in and there's Faramir and, and Frodo in the middle, it says they sat in a wide semicircle between the arms of which Faramir was seated on the ground while Frodo stood before him. It looked strangely like the trial of a prisoner. So one, you get that perspective. It's the same literary device. It seems looked strangely like the trial of a prisoner um, from the perspective of somebody who was looking at it, Sam, here. But also I think this, uh, uh, I really like this imagery because mm-hmm. you have this trial, right? And this chapter, there's judgment going on. Um, in multiple ways, right? So uh, Frodo is judged by Faramir, and then at the end, Faramir is judged. Yeah, by Sam, too, specifically, right? Right. Yeah, with that line that you have shown your, truly shown your quality. Classic. I think that's a lot of memes now online, by the way. Yeah. great. Yeah, I think this chapter, I think it does get a lot of attention because Faramir gets a lot of attention from readers as a character. So you do see some attention to this chapter, but I think it gets maybe a little underrated in terms of some of the writing. I think it's really, it's, it's one of those chapters where Tolkien's writing is just on point. And I just want to call at least a couple of, of scenes to our attention here. Uh, I love the description of 
the window on the west. I think it's beautiful. It says here, um, remember the window on the west, by the way, it's, they're in like a cave behind a waterfall. So the window is really the opening to the waterfall and then outwards. So it says, they stood on a wet floor of polished stone, the doorstep, as it were, of a rough-hewn gate of rock opening dark behind them. But in front, a thin veil of water was hung, so near that Frodo could have put an outstretched arm into it. It faced westward. The level shafts of the setting sun behind beat upon it, and the red light was broken into many flickering beams of ever-changing color. It was as if they stood at the window of some elven tower, curtained with threaded jewels of silver and gold, and ruby, sapphire, and amethyst, all kindled with an unconsuming fire. Gorgeous, beautiful. Yeah. Talking about the sunset there. I can go off of what you, I, I love that quote too um, about the, mm -hmm. the waterfall, and I had a, a, a note here written. I had the same quote, and then underneath I uh, also highlighted, even as, he, even as he spoke, the sun sank, and the fire faded in the flowing water. Um, and I think this is another example of how uh, important time is in the Lord of the Rings. Timing mm -hmm. comes up all the time, um, where they they ar arrive at this location and just as they're there, that is the perfect moment to see this, and then it then it's gone. Um, and it's you know, and it's it, you know, maybe not so subtly. It's it's the perfect moment for seeing that. Yeah. It's also the perfect moment for me in Faramir out in the wilderness. Absolutely, this whole thing is such an incredible stroke of luck. Yeah. Right. That they do bump into him here, and it, what if they were at a slightly different place, and he was at? I mean, it's incredible. Like that importance of timing um, is everything in Lord of the Rings. I love too, though, that like thinking about the transience of the the world in many ways, mm -hmm. uh, both events like the sunset and the world itself, and that's a big part in this chapter. And the window on the west here, I guess, really is essentially a metaphor for all of that. Um, you have Faramir. And his men, before they eat, they all rise and they look out the window. They face the window and just stand there silently for a bit. And Varmir explains to Frodo. He says, so we always do. Uh, we look towards Numenor, that was, and beyond, to Elvenholm, that is, and to that which is beyond Elvenholm and will ever be. So it, it's like their pre-dinner prayer in a way. It's their ritual before dinner. And time is this fundamental part of it. Numenor, that was Elvenholm, which is beyond Elvenholm, but will always be. Yeah. So different stages of time happening here. And then Faramir himself, he is constantly identifying with Numenorians in this chapter, right? He's of Numenorian descent. Gondor's of Numenorian descent. But Numenor is something that was, as he says here in his ritual. And so as a result, though, he characterizes even his own people, long after Numenor, as... um a failing people. He says, we are a failing people, a springless autumn, um, because he says the enemy increases while we always decrease. And there's a lot of talk about that in this chapter, that Gondor, which is this kingdom that is the heir to Numenor in many ways, or at least founded by Numenorians long, long, long ago, before mm -hmm. their own kingdom had been uh, sunk into the sea. It's fading. And we saw a lot of discussion about this with Lorien, it's a running theme of the book, but it's just on full display here. And again, the window on the West itself is the metaphor. Yeah. And you know, what's really cool about the, the dinner practice or the, the ritual that um, the Gondorians have uh, mm -hmm. is that Faramir asks Frodo what his uh, tradition is. And Frodo's yeah. is that he says that if they are a guest, that they bow to their host. 
And so you have this sort of mirroring. You have this parallel where the characters here are guests in time, right? So the Gondorians face face time, right? And then they're mm-hmm. facing this this window, and Frodo is facing his. Uh, if he's a guest, he's facing his host, and really they are. Time is the host for these characters, right? And yeah, yeah, and it's really cool as it is for us all. Yes. Yeah. Um, but before we get uh, too far ahead, I wanted to um, touch quickly on the scene of uh, Faramir seeing Boromir in the boat. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't. I yeah, didn't, I didn't think... mention this. I think maybe I didn't mention the summary. We should maybe summarize it real quick. Sure. Yeah. So Faramir tells Frodo that he knows Boromir is dead because he saw him in the boat that Aragorn and company would have put him in for their little funerals, funeral ritual. So he he has seen him in the boat, and he's going down the river, and he's going down to the sea, and he describes it as very surreal. But Faramir is very confident that he actually saw it. Frodo doubts him. He says it's probably a vision. Faramir says absolutely not. This is this happened, no doubt. Um, and I think we have no reason to not believe Faramir. He seems a pretty logical guy. He points right. out that the way it must have worked is that the boat comes from Lorien, so it must be magical, and so that's how it's still kind of floating instead yeah. of being wrecked on something. So that makes sense to me. So I'm, yeah, I think I'm inclined to believe him there. And so yeah, and sorry. Oh no, that's fine. Yeah, I think it's just a really, it's a really beautiful image. The boat, full of water, still floating on its way to the sea. Um, and actually, I want to read the quote here. Yeah. Uh, Frodo is saying, "A vision it was that you saw, I think, and no more. Some shadow of evil fortune that has been or will be, unless indeed it is some lying trick of the enemy." I have seen the faces of fair warriors of old laid in sleep beneath the pools of the dead marshes, or seeming so by his foul arts. And this quote, actually, uh, I'll get ahead to it, but uh, is my favorite in the chapter. Faramir responds, Nay, it was not so, said Faramir, for his works fill the heart with loathing, but my heart was filled with grief and pity. And I think Mm. that's such a nice uh, way of saying that like uh, the grief is not evil, right? And we've talked about this yes. before where Tolkien has, I mean, the book is just, it's about loss, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, that's very hard to avoid. You're but right. I like the that you have loathing on one side and then grief and pity being, oh, it can't possibly be evil because I felt grief. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, and and the, that losses can really be something that's, you can't feel loss without having loved something. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I love that to me too, that's one of those themes that is kind of cliche in some ways. I think I hear that a lot, right? Um, and it goes back to better to have loved and lost than never loved at all, blah, blah, sure. blah. But I I like how Tolkien's pretty subtle with that specific way of thinking of it, right? It it's how you put it. Like he just puts that contrast there and lets you have to unpack why is grief good instead of just spelling it out for you. Right. Um, one thing I want to quickly touch on because I, I guess I'm, what I'm thinking here is that we can talk about some little things, but we got to talk about Faramir's character in a bit here. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of maybe a big, big subject, but a, a small subject I want to touch on is Tolkien drawing on his, um, medieval literature knowledge yet again. And mm, hit me with we've that. talked, we've, we've talked about Tolkien, like trying to give these things a medieval vibe, like based on actual 
historical events or just the the feel of certain historical eras and sort of the dynamics from those eras and putting them into this book to give it a sort of a sense of i think grounded reality in a lot of ways and in this chapter i think what we see a lot of is well we do see a lot of faramir talking about gondor and rohan and the difference between the two mm-hmm. gondor as great mighty empire at least at one point has declining but saw itself as very educated and very wise and noble in the Rohirrim were these people who were kind of to the north and they're a little, they're a little wild they kind of like to fight a little too much uh according to Faramir they're a little too into that not very educated necessarily and he says though they 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 get brought into the fold a little bit and the Rohirrim have learned a lot from the Gondorians but they still have their own traditions and they still kind of keep their own ways of doing things alive, but they, they've learned a lot from the Gondorians. And meanwhile, he, Faramir says, us Gondorians have gotten worse a little bit. We've taken on some of the bad things from the Rohirrim. Mm-hmm. We're a little too war-centered now. And um, this dynamic here is so interesting. It's, it's, this dynamic to me echoes the situation of Western Europe um, toward the end of the Western Roman Empire and the fall of the Ro- Western Roman Empire where you did have this civilization that was educated and thought they were educated elites of the world. And these people up north who were kind of like a little oh, barbaric, you know, right? very warlike, didn't like that. But eventually those sort of barbaric, quote unquote, people adopt a lot of things from the Roman Empire. So, I mean, all those Germanic tribes that lived north of the Roman Empire when they invade, they start speaking Latin or forms of Latin, and they continue to speak Latin throughout the Middle Ages, if not actively, or if not um, fluently or natively, at the very least for purposes of record keeping, it becomes a sign of education. Like So they've adopted Latin, they adopt Christianity, they adopt all these things that sort of make them Roman, and they all try to say they're Roman. Meanwhile, the former Western Roman Empire itself becomes pretty Germanicized by the Germanic people that came in. So they take a lot of stuff from the Germanic cultures. Like I think we we know clothing styles. I think was a big, is a big example. Hmm. Um, language comes up, form of government comes up, on a big way. I mean, the Roman Empire falls, so right. <laughs> that government's not there. So in like it is replaced by Germanic style governments throughout Western Europe. I haven't really given a date range for this. It's kind of it'd be pretty broad, but you know, I'm basically talking late antiquity into high middle ages that window of time probably that'd probably be a window of about uh, 300 ce to uh let's say 1100 ce just for the sake of it so big window of time um ce that stands think, but, for uh christ everlasting right it does yeah you know because i'm a absolutely only only using christian dates here thank you uh, okay pip. just wanted to check make sure uh, so for 300 christ everlasting to <laughs> <laughs> Maybe about 1100. But I think what Tolkien's stealing here is kind of that vibe, kind of that feel. He wouldn't have been very familiar with it. The guy wrote, um, did his research on Anglo-Saxon literature. Anglo-Saxons were one of those Germanic tribes that does eventually kind of take a lot of it. It gets brought into the fold of the Roman culture, right? And they adopt Latin and they adopt Christianity. They don't speak Latin, but they use it for all their books or a lot of them at least, right? At least all the religious and like government ones. Well, some of the government ones. Oh, God, I'm going to get into a hole. Okay. Point is, <laughs> point is, real world 
feel or like real world power dynamics that Tolkien's taking and putting into this book to give it, I think, a sense of weight and a sense of realism. Authenticity. If, it's, there. It's, it's It's authentic. Yeah. You could totally buy this. And I think that's, that's to me is like a big trick for why Lord of the Rings works because he uses these actual authentic things instead of having to make them up right. whole cloth. You know, something interesting about when I was reading through this time that I noticed about um, uh, the difference between the Rohirrim and uh, Gondorians, the Rohirrim are described as being more wild, and yet they are more detached from nature, in a sense. That Yeah. Yeah, so the, the Gondorians used to have, like... Uh, more to be, they used to be more elvish in that sense. They were high men, and I don't know. I just thought that was interesting that the 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 wild peoples are actually, uh, in some sense, more separated from from nature. Mm-hmm. Right, because and in some sense, it's because I think that they are directly in conflict with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like to farmer pointing out the. You you mentioned the normalization of grief, or perhaps the the sort of acceptance and understanding of death and the grief that it brings. And Faramir talks about that too as something Gondor lost in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Like perhaps if Gondor had been better at grieving, he has a point when he says that uh, in Gondor death was ever present because the Numenorians still, as they had in their old kingdom, um, hungered after endless life, unchanging. Kings made tombs more splendid than houses of the living and counted old names in the rolls of their descent dearer than the names of sons. Childless lords sat in aged halls, musing on heraldry. In secret chambers, withered men compounded strong elixirs or in high cold towers asked questions of the stars, and the last king of the line of Anarion had no heir. And it's it, there's just this... I was just thinking about this when you talk about the grief thing. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of like lack of acceptance of death happening there when it says kings make making tombs more splendid than current houses. You might think at first that that's, oh, you know, accepting of death, but it's not. Like it's it's a denial of it. Right. And it, it's like too much focus on it. So there's there's grieving over death, but then there's being overly focused on it that you can't function properly. <laughs> and that's for Gondor has has become yeah i mean i think it's interesting like the i think we'll see later in this book the contrast of faramir actually sees boromir go boromir to faramir is is gone um but not everybody has that whereas denthor has some physical remains of boromir on his lap right he has the horn and i think that's showing that he hasn't let him go yeah. Uh, whereas Farmir actually physically sees him leave. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's, so we should talk about Farmir. He in his resistance to the ring here, his denial of the ring, his refusal to take it. It's powerful, I think. He's got some really good, beautiful points here. Specifically, I think that line, very famous line now, where he says, "I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway." not where Minas Tirith falling in ruin, and I alone could save her. And then further, he continues and says, War must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness. 
nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor. Yeah, that's a great line. It, yeah, really. So it, it, these two lines come pretty close together because the second one's the justification for why Faramir wouldn't take the ring. Although when he says this, actually, he does not know it's the ring yet. He just thinks it's some kind of weapon. Yeah, it's time. it's interesting. I think, but I think there's yeah. a uh, an idea that floats around that it might be a an arrowhead or or something. You know that <laughs> led to to I, Isildur's like physical demise rather than his. Uh, uh, yeah. Spiritual like, Yeah, always still has been shot by Orgeros. It, it's like danced around a lot because Faramir and Frodo are dancing around each other because neither of them want to say what they know. It's danced around. But yeah, I, I noticed that they kept, Faramir kept going back to Isildur being killed by Orgeros, or so it's told, apparently. Yeah, I wonder if they thought it must have been something related to that. But, um, but he knew it must be something powerful. And he's not going to take it because to him, it's, he rejects power. Like the only reason you should have any power at all to him is to defend the thing that's beautiful and that's it yeah so i think that's, that's just a really strong powerful yeah. moment tolkien for what it's worth said i mentioned this in a previous episode about treebeard tolkien says that in his letters he says faramir is the character that he put most of his own personal ideas into i still dispute that i still think treebeard has even more of it but uh that for what it's worth Tolkien. but you know that. you really just can't yeah. help some people that's no you really can't convince yeah. guys like J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> well, let's see. Charlie, I I already said my favorite quote of this chapter. Um, do you have a favorite quote from The Window on the West? Yeah, I, and I think I'll reread it for posterity, but it's actually something I read. But it's still Faramir saying, We look towards Numenor that was, and beyond to Elvenholm that is, and to that which is beyond Elvenholm and will ever be. And I like it for all the reasons I said earlier in our discussion. Excellent. Okay, so next week we're going to do Book 4, Chapter 6, The Forbidden Pool. Please, if you have any questions for us, please send them to arclotr at gmail.com, and we will answer them. Could be, could be anything. It could be about Lord of the Rings. It could be about podcasting. It could be about what beer we're drinking right yep. now. Oh, uh, yeah, great questions. I'm not going to reveal that because what nobody if asked it? You have to ask, yeah. Uh, nobody asks, so we can't possibly <laughs> say. Um, we should do that every episode. Yeah. Yeah. But, we, but wait, don't I drink the same beer every episode? <laughs> yeah. It would be really boring. <laughs> not going to say which one it is, but yeah, I do want to end it. I said last week, two weeks, whenever the heck we released an episode last, um, that we would talk about the Tolkien trailer. And what that is is Fox Searchlight has a upcoming movie about tolkien's life so it's not about lord of the rings it's not about silmarillion but it's tolkien himself and his life and it's a quick teaser trailer it's only a minute long you know i thought it could be fine i don't know in the end i will watch anything tolkien related and say okay cool whatever um i'll have thoughts such on a sucker uh, i am I'm a sucker you. for any kind of adaptation because i just think it's inherently interesting to adapt something right right so i just i'm going to be interested even it could suck and i'll be very interested though the whole time so yeah check that out um the teaser i just i don't really have much to say about it though it was, it was a teaser and it was a few scenes from tolkien's life it looks like there's gonna be a big first world war focus yeah. and it looks like they're trying to do something where he will see, like sort of see images from like in the stuff he's seeing in life 
I can kind of start seeing that as a oh, potential story for Middle Earth. Hmm. So I think the example that struck out that stuck out at me in the teaser was being on the battlefield and seeing an explosion and seeing some kind of fiery demonic presence in the explosion and it's like oh, okay maybe hmm. a little Balrog-ish thing going on there. Um, yeah, because he does get we'll the idea not, in but... World War One for um, Hitler being all of the orcs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. in Saruman, every Mussolini, every one of them comes. If they don't cover, if they don't cover Saruman as Mussolini in this movie, it's trash. I'm boycotting it. Um. So yeah, we will keep you posted. If there's another trailer, we um maybe can say more. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. Well, all right. All right. So next week then, same time, same place. Maybe not same time. We'll do our best. Approximately the same time. Time, you know what? Time. Let's talk about time for a second. Time is. <laughs> time is. This episode is run time. There's a, <laughs> there's a metaphor I like to think about. And it's about two characters standing behind a waterfall in the water. Never mind. Um, <laughs> One of them says, hey, what's your favorite quote out of Lord of the Rings? <laughs> um, but yeah, we will see you all then.